What I'd like to look at today is something that is, unlike most of our shirim, it's actually a topic that's dealt with all the time, but we'll look at it from a different perspective, and that is uh, Yosef's dreams. And the question that I want to pose at the beginning um, is, are Yosef's dreams prophetic, or are they not prophetic? And the difference between the two is going to be that a prophetic dream, we would assume, is going to come true, and we should anticipate it coming true. And if so, how does it come true? If on the other hand, it's a non-prophetic dream, I mean, something that sort of was generated by your own thoughts and by your own fears and everything else, the way we would typically analyze dreams today, in which case, it'll say a lot more about you than about anything that's going to happen. And uh, then we would look at it that way. How does Yosef see them? How do the brothers see them? How does father see them? And how do they actually play out is the key question. I want to ask a second question, uh, which is um, a small piece of the puzzle, which is part of a much larger other puzzle, which we're not going to touch on today, which is why does Yosef treat his brothers the way he does when he's sitting on top in Egypt, and they don't know who he is, and they come, right, that whole thing. So let's start from the beginning and look at the dreams themselves. And we have to remember, we often, this, I can't repeat this enough, we often get misled by or, or blinded by too much information. We know how stories play out, so we read the, the beginning knowing the end, and we read it towards that, and we fail to be surprised, which is also a shame that we miss that. And the second thing is, we often um, confuse, and that's because we don't do Kriyat Torah the right way. Well, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, we do it the right way, but there'll be another way to do it, which which would be far more interesting and far more educational, but wouldn't work for other reasons. Uh, is that we often confuse different parts of the text and don't notice what's what's happening in the text. And what I mean is, if you were to have Kriyat Torah being acted out, so you had the Baal Kriyat playing the role of God, you know, and then you had somebody else there playing the role of uh, Yosef and somebody else playing the role of Yaakov and everything else, then it would be really bad. It would work out terribly because coordinating that sort of thing would take way more than six days of, uh, of preparation. But it would be educationally super effective because everybody would see this is what the text is saying, this is what Yaakov is saying, this is what, and then you'd have to have little um, wind, little clouds floating over with what they're thinking. What? Right, so on Broadway it works, but the problem with Broadway is they don't know shot. Right? I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example um, as a lead into this. Uh, what is the garment that, that is famous in Yosef's case? Tonet Pasim. Good. How, how, what's shot on Broadway? How does, how does Broadway learn Tonet Pasim? Amazing. I'm sorry. It's amazing. Let's get it right. Technicolor coat. What does a Tonet Pasim actually mean? Actually, it doesn't. Okay? What does, what are Pasim? Because that's the only word. Okay, so pasim is a word that in rabbinic Hebrew ends up meaning stripes or boards, like uh, narrow boards. Right? You have pasim biraot in the second parak of Eruvin, but that doesn't. That's not what it means in Tanakh necessarily. Okay, so one little hint to ketona pasim, and this is just a little sukaria, a little priest of I guess, before the meal is before the shear is. Um, where else does does Kona Pasim show up in Tanakh? Uh, with, uh, <coughs> Amnon, Rape, Samar, 
And what does Tamar do? She tears her. Tears her. So the text tells us princesses wear Tonapasim. So we now know that Tonapasim is sort of royal wear. Now what is Pasim? So Pasim is your palm. Pasayad. So what's a Tonapasim? A Tonapasim where the sleeve is so long it goes to your palm. Right? What, what does that signify? It signifies you're not working. Because if you're working, you wear short sleeves. David, when he's a kid, is laughed at by Goliath. What's he laughed at for? Because he's got red skin. <coughs> what kind of skin does Goliath have? Totally pale. Why? It's always under armor. Why is David a redneck? He's always out in the sun. And what's he wearing? A short little skirt. Tell that in high school, they crack up. But he's wearing a short little skirt because he's got to be able to run and pick up rocks and get a slingshot and shoot things. He can't be encumbered by stuff. Right? So, Tona Pasim is royal wear. Broadway doesn't know that. So, they know what they know. Okay. Um, and so, we, when we read this story, we are led by commentary on it in the story, and we assume it to be accurate. But let's read it with fresh eyes. Yosef, we're introduced to Yosef, um, has his father, is his father's favorite. He loves him more than all the other brothers. He makes him a katon pasim. And the brothers hate him. It's very easy to understand why the brothers hate him. And Chazal, by the way, blame Yaakov for the servitude in Egypt. They say, a father should never favor one son over the others because of the garment that he, Yaakov gave to Yosef. As a result of that, one thing led to another. We ended up enslaved in Egypt. We all know what one led, thing led to the other means is that the jealousy and the selling into slavery, the selling into the, to slavery to Egypt, and that all led to us going to Mitzrayim. Okay, Yosef seems to act um, foolishly and brashly. In fact, uh, Rav Amnon Bazak this week put out a beautiful article in which he pointed out that all of the events that befall Yosef in Mitzrayim seem to be responses to his own character flaws at the beginning of the parsha. One of his character flaws at the beginning of the parsha is that he seems to uh, induce jealousy and to not mind provoking jealousy and seems to be deaf or blind to the fact that his brothers hate him and still gets up and says, hey, I got a dream. You want to hear my dream? Like, why would he want to hear your dream? And, and the text even says that he said, you want to hear my dream? And they hated him more even before he told them the dream. Just the very fact that he said, hey, you want to hear my dream is already raising a kind of a red flag in front of the bull. Right? Um, the other thing is something that I'll point out in, in the dream itself. So in his first dream, he says, It's the only place outside of one chapter, one famous chapter of Tehillim that the word Aluma shows up. We're gathering sheaves in the field. So now, in this dream, let's see who's there. Yosef is describing a dream. If you're watching the dream in 3D, what do you see? Brothers. And what do the brothers have? Sheaves. So there's brothers and sheaves, and each guy's got his own sheaf. And behold, my sheaf stands up. And now your sheaves all turn about to my sheaf. So now, there are X amount of sheaves. We don't know how many brothers are in this scene. There's a few of them at least. And one of them is Yosef. And then, the people disappear from the scene. And now there's just sheaves. And there's a sheaf that has, well, sheaf that we'll imagine has a long coat on it with a big Y, Right? 
in the middle, and then all the other sheaves that have a resh and a shin and a lamin or whatever are all bowing down. That's the way he describes the dream. Now, what's their response? Which, by the way, the coat he's wearing seems to lend to that. You think you're going to be king over us? You think you're going to rule over us? Because how are they interpreting his dreams? What do they think his dreams are? Are they prophetic or psychological? Psychological. In other words, he's thinking about bringing a king over them, so he's having dreams like this. They, by the way, don't deny that he had the dream. They're not saying to you, you're lying. They're saying, you're thinking about ruling over us, and that's why you're having this sort of dream. And we see that they believe that he really had the dream, because it says they hated him for the dream and al-dvarav. Now, what's dvarav? That he told them, right. He doesn't give any interpretation. Now, by the way, what does the dream mean? We don't know. How, well, how do the brothers react to hearing the dream? Well, how do they interpret the dream? The dream indicates that they are all going to be bowing down to him, and therefore he's going to be their king. That might not be what it means. And we could paint Yosef as being very tamim here, very naive, or very simple, and just saying, this is what I dreamt, I don't know what it means. And they immediately take the low road and say, oh, it means you want to rule over us and everything else. But we don't know what it actually means, which is going to impact on us greatly because when we look down the line, we have to ask the question, if it's a prophetic dream, it has to come true. So did it come true? And we're going to have to ask that question. Well, we can only say if it came true or not if we know the proper interpretation. But if we don't know what it means, it could be that it did come true, but we have to read it differently. If, on the other hand, we're convinced that we know what it means, then it's very easy to say either it did come true or it didn't come true. And we're going to see that come out in spades in the next dream, in the next, uh, in the next piece. And this, by the way, seems to be the height of either really naivete or really provocative behavior. They already hate him for the dream he told them, and now, oh, I got another dream. I'll tell you this. Right? Or either that, or they're, or they're keeping their hatred very well clothed. Um, Alright, what is it? Now, how is this dream different than the first one? If you think about it, it sounds like the same dream. Everybody's bowing to me. In which case, why have a second dream? You already had your first dream. You already ticked them off enough. Why have another dream? So this dream must be a little different. How is this dream different? No actual problems. So first of all, there's no actual brothers. How many people are in this vision? One. One. There's one person there, that's Yosef, and there's 11 stars, which is a little bit of a no-brainer, and there's the sun and the moon, and they're all bowing to him. Now, I have no idea what stars and sun and moon bowing looks like. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling with a sheaf bowing, but a sheaf at least would get, kind of standing up and lying down. I don't know what a sun and moon bowing is, but okay, well, Pixar comes sure could do a great job. But that's what he, what he says to them. Now, the reaction is interesting, and it drives our interpretation, and it drives our interpretation away. Father is standing there, and father gets mad at him. So what's he saying to Yosef? It sounds like you're generating this dream. So in other words, how is father interpreting the dream? First of all, what kind of dream is it? 
psychological dream because you don't have control over prophetic dreams. Let's say, 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 why did you have such a dream? I had a dream. Nobody says to Paro, why did you have such a dream? Nobody could say it. They'd be dead. But, you know, because that's a prophetic dream. And Yosef doesn't say it to Sarmashkim and Sarofim either. But to Yosef, they said it because the assumption, the working assumption is, you generated this. And by the way, we've helped create the environment. You know, Yaakov gave you a fancy coat and you're not working with the other brothers, and you're somewhat special and all that, so you've already created the, we've already created the environment for you to feel like you're special. Okay. So now, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the claim here is that ya- is Yosef's generating himself. And, wh- and what is it that Yaakov says to him? What kind of dream is this? And right away we say, well, that's what it means, because Yaakov said that's what it means. And by the way, here's where things get confusing. When you hear a Baal Kriya reading this, or you're reading it yourself, it's the same tone and it's the same text. So as far as you're concerned, as far as we're concerned generally, unless we take a step back, the text that said he had this dream also said this is what it means. And so therefore, what's the sun? Father. Cute little play in English. What's the moon? Mother. And therefore, we immediately say, aha, so you see, the dream already has to be at least partially faulty, because mother's dead. Oh, maybe it's not mother, maybe it's Bilha. But we have to step back and say, let's pay attention, what is the dream and what's the interpretation? The dream is that 11 stars, the sun and the moon, are bowing down to Yosef. The interpretation given on the spot is <clears throat> that... The sun is the father, the moon is the mother, the eleven is the eleven brothers. Now, the eleven stars being the eleven brothers is kind of easy. The sun and the moon is a little bit more difficult. Isn't the sun a star anyway? What? The sun is a star anyway, so... They don't think that. Tanakh doesn't think of it that way. Right? You think of it in Breshi. Breshi, you know, on the fourth day. Okay, so, yes, we know it's a star, but it doesn't help us in, on a literary level. So the question is, what is the real interpretation of what's going on? So we don't know. So we can play this one of two ways. We can say, this is Yosef's own thoughts, and therefore he's generating it, and therefore we should not expect that it necessarily will come true, but we do expect that there'll be a really bad relationship between him and his brothers. That we see play out. Possibility, too, is to say it's prophetic, and for it to be prophetic, we expect it to come true, but then we have to say, well, what does it really mean? for it to come true. The second piece of the question is, so why are there two different dreams, even though you're right, Aaron, that the form is different? Because in the second dream, there's no other people in the dream except for Yosef. Nonetheless, why have the same essential dream of the whole family bowing to him, if that's all that it is? Okay. So, let's take, I want to ask one last small question. If you take a look at source three, and then again at source 5 on the page, I put a couple <laughs> phrases here in purple. I think it's actually some form of maroon or fuchsia, but, uh, but uh, it just came up on the palette. Um, is that um, which, people, which people in Tanakh do we know their life? It, whose lifespan in Tanakh is known to us? Besides all the begats and the beginning of Rashid, with that whole, the whole list. Who do we know? Abraham. Abraham. Sarah. Sarah. Yitzchak, Ishmael, Yaakov, Moshe, 
Aaron and well in Chumash Yosef Yosef sorry correct Yosef now those eight which are from Lech Lecha on the only eight that we know their lifespan we never hear about how old Esau is when he dies we don't hear about his death we don't hear about we hear about Yishmael's death 137 right actually we actually we hear about Amram and Levi and Kahat also in 137 or so alright every one of them we hear their years once even Moshe Rabbeinu we hear his years once at the very end now Moshe himself says Ben that's in dialogue and that's part of his speech but as far as the text the text testifies about people one time how long does you how, long, how many times do you need for one exception Please take a look at source three, which is from the last chapter of Breshit. And then at the very end of the last Pasuk in Breshit, in five, Yosef's the only guy to get his years recorded twice in Chumash, by, in, by the text. That's strange. Mapitom. Right? That's a small side little question. Okay, um, let's take a look at source two, and that's going to kind of spring us off into trying to understand what's going on. Yosef ends up being sold, brother sold him, Vidanim sold him, Machloket, okay, ends up being sold, goes down to Mitzrayim, achieves greatness in Mitzrayim, and then is thrown into a pit, achieves even great, greater greatness in Mitzrayim, becomes viceroy of Egypt, and that's all very good. The brothers in the meantime are doing their own thing. The brothers then come down to Egypt to get food because of the famine, and they come before this viceroy. Before the entire series of strategies that Yosef employs in deceiving his brothers and manipulating to get Binyamin down, and then manipulating to get Binyamin imprisoned, and all of the stuff that he does, all the machinations, before that we have the following pasuk. As they show up, and as Yosef sees them, probably from behind a curtain, and they don't recognize him because behind a curtain, and plus he doesn't look at all like uh, like he used to. By his Yosef, so the first thing that happens when Yosef sees them is he remembers the dreams, and the dreams we assume are these dreams. We don't hear about other dreams. These dreams, he, re- he hears about these dreams, and then. And he kicks into the strategy. You're spies, you're coming to spy out the land. No, we're not. Yes, you are. And it all, one thing leads to the other. What's the connection between that and the dreams? So now, if you're going to claim that the dreams were self-motivated by Yosef, it's saying, I'm the king and I'm in charge, and I'm going to get these guys to bow down to me, well, guess what? i got news for you. They're already bowing down to you. They've already come to Egypt and they're on the floor. And you're accusing them. Well, you need them all to bow down to you? So that means you've got to get Binyamin to come down and bow down to you? Well, then that wouldn't explain why you don't keep up the charade until Yaakov comes. Because according to, you're supposed to have Yaakov bow down to you, right? But instead you, you reveal yourself before that. So there may be a whole different thing going on. And the key word in this whole thing is lahem. What is a chalamot asher chalam lahem? <coughs> What does that mean, Lahem? What? The dreams that he dreamt regarding them or on their behalf? Let's read it for a moment as on their behalf. 
There are two essentially different, distinct, polar opposite ways of looking at power. Power is control. Power is responsibility. I've been put into this position because it's my job to lead the people. I mean, I've gotten this position so that I can drive everybody into the ground. Right? Essentially, Mel Brooks in History of the World Part 1, it's good to be the king. Okay? That was, I could take advantage of everybody. All right? But, Asher Chalam Laham, how does this work? So, let's go back and think about the dreams. The dreams are different dreams. First of all, what's the first dream? What's the setting of the first dream? Because remember, dreams are symbolic, and therefore, the language is symbolic. What is the setting of the first dream? In the field. They're working in agriculture. Now, notice that the first dream, Rachel Hassan wrote this beautifully in a piece. He said, you look, and you'll see that there are literary bookmarks in the first dream. The word vihine introduces each stage. There are three scenes in the dream, and I marked them with uh, blue. So the first scene is that we're all working together. What's the second scene? My chief stands up, tall. And third scene? Your, your sheaves turn around and bow to me. Now, sheaves, of course, represent what? Sustenance. It's, it's an easy, easy, easy connection. So now, if you're Yaakov, if you're Yosef, and you're looking back, at this point in time, when you're viceroy of Egypt, you've got all of the store of the storehouses of grain at your control, and people are coming from the entire Middle East to buy grain and negotiate with you. And now the brothers come, and it turns out the famine hit home, and they've come, and by the way, they're so poor now they can't even send slaves, they've lost all that, so they're, they're coming themselves. Now look back at the dreams and think about it. How did we start out all those years ago? We started out as being involved in a common enterprise, working together. What has happened since then? My financial status has risen above yours. No question, I'm king of Egypt, you're not. What's the third and final stage here? Your sheaves are bowing to mine. Now remember, everything is symbolic, so bowing is also symbolic. What is bowing symbolic of? In Tanakh, why do people bow to people? What? Power. Power. What else? Respect. Respect. Good. What else? Praise. Praise or adulation or even worship. Good. Also, dependence. We find this throughout Tanakh. And I'll give you a great example. When people say, we always talk about this in Purim time, about, ooh, we don't bow down to people. It's absolutely not true. Right? Avram is bowing down to Ephron. Why is Avram bowing to Ephron? Because he's dependent on Ephron's goodwill to get the cave that he wants. It's dependence. It's a combination of gratitude and dependence. So now, you're Yosef, and what do you see? We were all working and sustaining the family together. My fortunes have risen up tall, second scene. Third scene, you are all now dependent on me for being taken care of. So now, what is Yosef, what's the first thing he wants to do? He wants to take care of them. Where is it going to be easier for him to take care of them? In Canaan or in Egypt? Egypt. So he pulls strings, pulls things around. He's got another agenda also, and gets them to come down to Egypt. And by the way, take a look at source five. <coughs> Sorry, source three. 
after he reveals himself, he says, don't worry, I'm going to feed you. And by the way, as the rest of Egypt is selling everything they have, their livestock, their land, their selves, Yosef's family is on bituach le'umi. Every kid born gets another check every week from food. Lechem l'fiataf. So Yosef is fulfilling that. By the way, this now is exactly a fulfillment of the first dream. You're all dependent on me for grain. But that was only the first dream. When the brothers come down in source four, Yosef introduces them to Pharaoh. And he gives them instructions about what to say to Pharaoh. Now, if you're coming to a new country and you want to move there, typically what you want to do is as much as possible fit in with language, with dress, with food, and with the mores of the country. You want to fit in. You want to blend in. You don't want to stick out. Okay? What does Yosef tell his brothers to tell Paro when they come to meet Paro? And Paro is going to ask them, what do you guys do for a living? What does he say? We're shepherds. shepherds. Why? Because Egyptians hate shepherds. We talked last year about why. Egyptians hate shepherds. They think shepherds are disgusting people. Right? Because probably they're vegetarians and they don't like the whole thing about sheep economy. Okay? And therefore, what's Paro going to do if you guys, because he doesn't have a choice, because I'm in power, and you're my family, so you're going to be here. What's he going to do? He's going to put you far away. He'll put you out in the middle of nowhere. Lancaster. Palmdale, 50 years ago. Nothing there. Acton. There's actually a town. Right? You'll be in the middle of nowhere. What's the advantage of being in the middle of nowhere? So let's go back and think about the second dream. What was the second dream? Eleven stars bowing to me. Stars. Stars. You're Yosef. That means you live in the world of Breshid. What are stars? What? Avram Avinu. And what did Hashem say to Avram? Ko That's what your kids are going to be like. Now, he said to Avram about something else, Ko Not just stars, but sand. What's the difference? Sand is okay, it's physical. What's stars? Stars is spiritual. Stars is up high. Stars is, is reaching your heights. Which means if the stars are bowing to Yosef, what are they dependent on Yosef for? Because bowing is dependence. They're dependent on Yosef for what? For the spiritual success. So Yosef now has a double job. One job is feed them and take care of them, make sure they live. And the other job, second dream is, I got to make sure that they succeed spiritually. So what's the first thing I got to do? I got to make sure they don't live in Hollywood. Or West Hollywood. I got to make sure that they don't live in a place where the influence is going to be bad. So I got to make sure that they go to Goshen, Dorton. Right? And so he manipulates again, says, tell Paro, your shepherd's not a lie, but make sure you tell him. So he'll house you out in Goshen. That changes over time. Because by the time we get to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, we find that Egyptians and Hebrews are living right near each other. But in the meantime, they're in Goshen. So Yosef sees himself as responsible for that. But let's be honest. You can feed somebody anywhere. You can even eat in Egypt. But Yosef understands that spiritual success is not going to come in Egypt. So what are Yosef's famous last words? They're at the bottom of the page. You're going to be here for a while. But God's going to remember you. And God's going to take you out and bring you to the land that he promised to have like in Yaakov. But guess what, guys? I cannot finish that job. But when the job gets finished, what I want you to do, take me with you. 
And the last thing he does is to make his kids, his family, take an oath that when God takes them out, he'll they'll take his bones with them. The, the oath that Moshe fulfills. So it says here they embalmed him, and we don't embalm. So uh, okay, it's before Matan Torah. Right. Okay, now. So how does this thing get fulfilled? And we still have two two parts of the dream to, to deal with. Because we talked about the 11 stars. We didn't talk about the sun and the moon. But Yosef himself clearly sees these dreams not as self-generated, but as prophetic, which means the sun and the moon have to come true. Father never bows to him, and mother can't. So maybe father and mother isn't what sun and moon mean. All right. What what is what does it take to finish the job that Yosef started, which is to ensure the success, the spiritual success of Bnei Israel? What do they need to do? They need to come home. And Yosef said it. God's going to remember you and take you home. So who's entrusted with that job? Ariel, you said it before. Who's entrusted with that job? Yoshua. Who's Yoshua, by the way? Yeshua bin Nun, Lamatei, Ephraim, a direct anacle of Yosef, direct descendant of Yosef. Right? And so Yeshua is the one who's going to finish that job. Interesting thing, if you take a look at the uh, top source, you'll note that Yeshua's lifespan is 110 years. Almost as if the Torah was saying, Yosef lived 110. By the way, Yosef lived 110, said it twice, as if to say, keep your ear out for 110, and Yeshua is going to finish the job. Weird thing. They took Yosef's bones out of Egypt. They brought him up and they carried him through the desert, correct? And where were they supposed to reinter them? In Shem, in all Yosef, right? Kebra Yosef. When should they have reinterred them in Kebri Yosef? As soon as they crossed the river. That's when they should have reinterred them. Why? Because they went there. Where's the first place they went after Gilgal and Yericho and Hai? They went to Hargrisim and Harival to do the ceremony. And they should have reinterred Yosef. They didn't. When did they reinter Yosef? Take a look at the, the uh, at source uh, 6. When did they finally re-enter Yosef? Only after Yeshua is dead. Why? Because Yeshua is finishing Yosef's job. Only after Yeshua has finished his career and finished his job can Yosef be put to rest. Okay. We're still left with one problem. So I'll ask this question. What is the sun and the moon? So what is Yehoshua's greatest moment in his career? And according to the text, the greatest moment in anybody's career. So Yehoshua comes out to battle the five kings. He leads his army in an overnight, uphill, in the dark, Massah, from Gilgal up to Givon, and goes to war against the five kings, surprises them, and either as the sun is rising, or as the sun is setting, or as the sun is high noon, machloket, how we understand the psukim, Yoshua turns around and says, those famous words which are, shemesh b'givon dom v'yareach v'yemekayalon. What does Yoshua say? 
The sun should stop still right here in Givon and the moon over there in Emekai alone, which would mean, by the way, it was probably at the end of the beginning of the day, because that's when the sun and the moon are both in the sky, visible to us. And the kicker is, Vayidom Hashemesh Hamad. The sun and the moon stood still. What does that mean in physics? I don't know. Is it consciousness? Is it a dream? I don't know. But that's what the text says. The sun and the moon stood still, which means the sun and the moon obeyed Yoshua, or bowed down to him. And so now we finally see the fulfillment of the, of the nevuah that Yosef had. They don't all happen at the same time. The sun and the moon bound to Yosef, meaning Yoshua, who's finishing the job of Yosef. The, this powerful passage references a book called Sefer Hayashar. You take a look at it. Isn't it written in the book of Yashar? So Ibn Ezra says the book of Yashar is a book like Sefer Machamot Hashem and Sefer Divrei Amin Machei Yisrael and all sorts of other books that referenced in the Torah we don't have. They're no longer extant. The Midrash, on the other hand, says Sefer Yashar is a nickname for another book that we have. Take a look at the Gemara and Avodah Zarah at the bottom. My Sefer Yashar, Chia Bar Abba Amr B'Yochanan, the Sefer Abraham Yitzchak V'Yakov Shinikru'u Yisharim. You know what Sefer Yashar is? Breshit. So where does it say in Breshit that the sun and the moon would stand still for Yoshua? In Hashemesh V'Areach V'Charas HaKochavim, Mishtachavim Lehi.